0: Transformationist is dedicated to real stories of transformation and the insights and actions that make it possible. Our guests share from their own stories the strategies and experiences that can help you shape transformation in your own life. Whether you are changing your mind, responding to change or designing a life different from what you have right now, my hope is that these stories will inspire you and help you on the way. Hi I'm Tash McGill and welcome to The Transformationist. Perhaps one of the most um, brutal but real parts of transformation is what happens when we have our hearts broken and how grief and loss can um, force us into places of change uh, but can also bring some of the truest elements of our character um, out into the surface and in the world. It's a process that requires enormous vulnerability but through the end of it, I believe can be real healing and a life that is richer and fuller than before. And uh, my guest today on The Transformationist is a dear friend, um, but an inspiring woman called Libby Moon. Um, Libby and I um, had intersected a number of times um, over the years, but the real meeting place of our relationship came um, at a point of upheaval upheaval in her life, where for a short time she came to stay uh, with me as um, a marriage that had been much longed for. Um, and and much enjoyed um, came to a very unexpected and surprising end and since then uh, Libby's journey through transformation and rebuilding and rediscovering herself uh, has been something remarkable so she's uh, bravely come on today to share her story and I'm so glad that you have Libby um, because it's
1: just lovely to hear your voice again. Thanks Tash, it's great to hear your voice actually and I want to thank you for having me on this Podcast, and I want to tell you that uh, your first podcast was amazing, and I just I just love listening to um, Meg. It was fantastic.
0: Oh, thank you so much. Yeah, um, Meg is she's a pretty she's a pretty remarkable woman. So uh, it's not just going to be women that we talk to on the show, but I am I feel really glad to have so many remarkable um, women's stories that I can kind of bring bring out yeah. and share. That feels like a special thing. So. Um, Look, let's dive into it because you know you and I have always been pretty good at you know cutting cutting down to the heart of things. Yes, we have. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, uh, so why don't we talk a little bit about? Um, let's talk about the grief and the loss. Let's talk about that that dark, awful time. What what happened? Where did you find yourself um,
1: in the midst of losing something that had been so precious? Okay. Uh, this is a very vulnerable thing for me to talk about and I may get emotional because it's one of the very hardest times of my life. Okay, I was married for 18 years to somebody I thought was the love of my life and my soulmate. Um, We had a very creative background together. Uh, He was a photographer, I was a writer and a photographic assistant and stylist and makeup artist. Mm. And um, we shared... A lot of good times together. But um, in 2014, um, I came home from work one day at the end of the day, and what transpired was the most heartbreaking, horrendous thing I've probably ever experienced. And um, my husband decided to bring a very abrupt end to our marriage without any formal discussion and basically told me that I wasn't the love of his life. He hadn't loved me for many years. And I wasn't his soulmate, and he was looking for his soulmate and his true self. He um, proceeded to actually tell me a lot of things that shocked me, and I literally just didn't know how to react. Um, He put $200 on the table, cash, and told me I was on my own, that he was done. And uh, quite frankly, it it was absolutely devastating. I left after 20 minutes. I didn't ask many questions. I was so gobsmacked, I didn't know what to say. Um, And I left the house that night and basically that was it. I walked out of 18 years of marriage. I left because I felt unsafe at the time. He made it clear that he wouldn't leave the house. Um, We were renting a house. And so I left because I felt unsafe. And um, I walked out into a cold, dark night and spent a sleepless night on somebody's couch. And um, yeah, it was just like, an unreal uh, experience that I still find quite traumatic to think about. Mm. Mm. I think one of the,
0: uh, I mean, it, we, to listen back to the story, even I'm taken back to, I think some of the, some of the shock and the surprise that um, that that you know I felt in talking to you and hearing about what had happened, but. Um, you know, when you look back now, a few years past, um, Do you, was the sh- the how did the emotional shock of that um, like was it also physical for you? Or like what, what happened in that space in terms of first response? You you left the house and and where do you where do you go from there? Did you have to did you have to deal with yourself? Sort of a mentally and emotionally first,
1: or did you have to deal with yourself physically? what What was what was the chaos like? Okay, um, I am a really resilient person, and I think um, that is what kicked in first of all. Um, I woke up the next morning in a state of shock and just got myself into action. I contacted friends, a few friends. I realised I had to go back to the house to get some things. Um, I took somebody with me. Um, I went back in and I'll just say this, um, I went back in and it was like I'd been erased from his life overnight. Mm. Um, That was really um, confronting and I realised I was dealing with something that was quite strange Um, and well planned. It was planned and thought through and so the emotions that, were in me were physical they were um, I was just completely disorientated Um, I the thing about me is as I said I'm very resilient and also have a very strong faith in God I ran to God from the moment it happened I literally connected with God the only way that I know how which is by talking to him and I just I just said I need you basically Mm. and I will say from that very first moment I knew that I wasn't alone even though I felt completely alone and completely devastated and completely abandoned by somebody I trusted um the other part of that is also I have the most incredible friends anyone could ever hope for and my friends are the gold in my life and um right there there's the emotion Mm. they just came to me they came to me um a lot of people didn't know for a while, but the ones that were closest to me, um, uh, they just they just came to me um, and they were there for me. And so those two elements really, uh, God and my friends, and combined with my family, and also the resilience that you do have and the strength that you do have when you when you actually have a faith in God, they just came to the fore. Yeah.
0: yeah. I think it's remarkable the number of times in these conversations with people that um, the idea of of faith in God or a spiritual practice, you know, becomes the touchstone. It becomes the, it becomes the, the anchor point, um, you know, and and, and in our day to day life, I think it's very easy to. It's really easy to kind of march through life, and um, you know, even if even if meditation is the thing that you do, or yoga is the thing that you do, or whatever that is, yeah. it's really easy to walk through life and almost kind of check the boxes of some of those practices. But then, in the moments of crisis, those things become so much more real and so much more um, so much more dependable. And I think it has something to do with. Um, you know I think the body but also the soul needs rhythm and needs ritual mm. to kind of start pulling itself back together yeah you know like okay if nothing else I can I can put myself in, in this place and I can base myself around these activities where did the um, you know the the immediate thing in what you've just shared you know you you're without a home yeah you're without the person who's been your partner. And really when you, you know, when you describe the way that your lives were intertwined, you know, so much of your, so much of your work was connected. So much of your social circle was connected, obviously. Yeah. Um, so you're without home, you're without, um, you know, some of those key foundations, yes. um, but you have this circle of friends kind of pulling around you, which I think is, is a remarkable, is a remarkable gift. Um, where did you start with trying to pull your life back together? Did you did you immediately know? Okay, this is how I'm going to try and and pull it all back together. Or did you have to, you know, figure that out? What parts of yourself did you have to rediscover?
1: Okay, um, you mentioned ritual. Now, um, I'm a really I'm a person who loves ritual, and throughout my life, um, those that know me know that my rituals mostly surround food and beauty, um, and they surround just realness so uh, the very first morning that I woke up I know this sounds a bit strange to say but I got up I put on my makeup I made myself feel okay in that sense I prayed I knew I had to have something to sustain myself so I, I was feeling really sick but I did eat something I reached out to my friends I basically realized that I had to find a place to stay so I wanted to stay with somebody who had that empathy, somebody who I knew would just receive me with open arms, and that was a friend called Kate Williams. And uh, I rang her and she just basically opened her arms to me. I needed to be somewhere where I felt surrounded by love, where I knew that I could just be myself, where I could just be whatever I was going to be at the time, which was a complete mess. Mm -hmm. Um, And I needed somewhere where I felt like there was a history and a home and when you've been stripped of everything in a matter of minutes, when your whole life is imploded and somebody has not even concerned with giving you money or apart from some cash, um, cutting you off your bank account, um, basically doesn't care that you go into a dark night. When all that happens, you are just wanting to go to the rocks in your life. The rocks are my faith, my friends and my rituals around living. So that's what I did and I knew that I had to be somewhere for a while that I was going to feel all those things long term for a number of weeks. Though mm. so initially when I went from Kate's place, I went to Waiheke Island because my family had come over from Singapore where they were living at the time, my brother, and I went there for four days to be with them and that was amazing. Um, it was being um, surrounded by family, that's what you need. You need people that just accept you. I mean, I was broken completely and utterly broken and i had wine with them i had food with them they're real wine and food people um are the best kind of people. oh look amazing <laughs> I, I, we had man of war um sarah oh. you know when, when you are broken you, you you know you need those things even though you feel find it hard to to eat you need that soothing homeliness around you the food the wine the conversation and mm. then and then I am quite a strategic person, so I rang a friend in Wellington, and uh, we would. T- and sh- and I said to her, I just rang her. I'd already t- spoken to her. I just said, I, I said, Donna, I need to come and stay with you and Tasha. Tasha is my other friend. They live and um, they're married, and they live on separate sides of Wellington. I said I need to come to Island Bay. I need to be on the wild coast. I need to walk in the rain, the wind. I need to be prayed for. I just want to come. And she just said, come. And so for that next six weeks, I went down to Wellington and I was just with my friends who just wept with me, made me beautiful food, um, put flowers around me, candles, chocolates. You know, they just surrounded me with all the things and the rituals that I love. And so I'm grateful that inside of me, I have that resource to know what I need when I need it. Mm, I think, you know, that's, that's relatively rare, I think, in... Particularly in um,
0: Western culture, because what you're describing is actually a very sensory healing process. Yeah. The idea that I can somehow come back to myself or, or become grounded again through, you know, I'm going to go put all of my stormy emotions yeah. into the storm and I'm going to. Be one with the weather in some regards, you know, and let those things kind of bluster over me. And at the same time, I'm going to surround myself with, you know, food that is warming and um, full of, you know, full of richness that's going to somehow restore back. You know, that, that that's the picture that comes to mind as you start to talk about the way that you that you led yourself into that healing process. Was it quite intuitive? Um, it sounds like it was quite organic.
1: Or, or were you conscious at the time of what you were what you were doing for yourself? I was really conscious of it actually I think because I've been involved with a lot of other people's grief and I know Mm -hmm. what it is and what you need and because I have friends that are just beautiful friends who at other times in my life have come to me when I've needed them and you know it's all about knowing what a person needs some you know obviously as you've said um, I'm a very sensory person and so that's what I need other people need other things but it was a very intuitive thing about myself, and when I um I, I said I wanted the winds of Wellington, the wildness. It's because you know I quite often have um, because I'm a writer, I'm always thinking of words and what they mean and and the um and the way they bounce off each other and and the analogies they give us. And so with the winds, you know, and as human beings, we're always going to at some point in our life experience loss and grief. It's going to sweep over us like a wind. It's like there's a saying, the wind, we don't know where it comes from. We don't know where it's going. And um, one of my friends, my really close friend, Tracy, rang me after I'd been to Wellington through all that wind. And she said to me, Libby, just lean into it. This is your time. This is your time to grieve, to to feel loss, instead of you know running back from it. Lean into it, and I'd already been doing that, but it was good to be reminded. And that's what I wanted at the time. I wanted to walk in the wind. I wanted to be ripped around by nature. I wanted to be um, by the waves and the surges and the and the ebb and flow of the sea. And um, I am, yeah. I, it just was amazing, you know. Like I always say to people, if I could have had the best holiday. With a broken heart, it was my six weeks in Wellington. I know that sounds really crazy. And I I also sat at a table with my friends and I wept because it was so hard for me to sit at those tables. And the first night I was with my friend Tasha and Calvin and their little girl, Maisie, who was about four at the time, I sat down and they live in Hataitae overlooking Evans Bay and they always have candlelight, which I'd always had throughout our marriage at our table. And we sat at the table and we held hands and we prayed and i just wept i cried because to sit at that table was so beautiful but also painful and mm. they just stood up and put their arms around me and that was that was i think that moment where i where i realized how much the table meant to me yeah that you can come to it no matter what state you're at and it's there and the people are there for you yeah
0: yeah, there's something about uh, there's something about it if you you know if you sit at a dining room table or you go to a cafe and a table's not quite heavy enough yeah you know if it's too lightweight and it kind of it doesn't feel like it's got the right kind of grounding you know to hold you because I think yeah you know if I if I dive into my writer's mind um, the table's been this con- been a constant you know kind of theme in, in my own life Yes it and- has. you're amazing you're amazing <laughs> you're. <incredible. laughs> Oh well, but I can't make bread the way that you make bread, Libby. We'll oh, no, yes,
1: absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> table tash, and um, you are—you've got a gift of absolute hospitality. It's amazing. Oh, thank you. I mean, I think,
0: but I think the table is central to that. You know, because a table, when you think about it, it is—it's strong enough. A good table is strong enough and wide enough and long enough. Yeah. To seat the people that need to be in the conversation, and to carry not just the weight of the food that you might put on top of it, but also the weight of those conversations. And there are times when the table is full of celebration, and then there are times like yours where you know what has been, you know what had been in that point a symbol of um, of love and hospitality. And you know when you describe the candlelight, um, your table had been a place where others had come for healing, and then all of a sudden the meaning of that symbol is somehow turned around on its head. How, do you, how did you go about reclaiming some of those things? Like, you know, how did you, how did you go about or, or are you in a place now where you can sit at a table where the candles are lit and there's, you know, families and couples and people around you? You know, does it still burn or has, has it somehow become yours again?
1: I'm still on that journey it's it's interesting because knowing I was going to do this podcast with you today I've been in a bit of turmoil actually because I suddenly realized I was thinking that yes transformation I've been transformed and then I know this sounds crazy but I suddenly realized I'm still being transformed and there's still so much of that emotion of loss there so how how am I now at the table and it's a really good question because um Way back four years ago, when I was still in the depths of my grief, the real black, dark place, another beautiful friend of mine, Sheridan Rhodes, who's a a travel writer from Australia, um, she came over here um, to write up something. And I always meet up with her. Sometimes I get to stay at amazing places with her. And she said to me, Libby, I've come up with the most amazing idea for you. When I'm overseas, people that get I'm tired of eating in restaurants and um, cafes and they just want to go and have a unique dining experience. They're able to because people will open up their homes and invite people in to come to their table and just partake of whatever they are eating so you get to be a part of the culture. She said, I think you should do this. It would be amazing. Mm. And so that was a seed for me with this whole thing about the table and that's when I started to realise how much the table has been such a huge part of my life. So I started on a journey four years ago of coming back to my table the way that it used to be, but it's different. And it's been a painful journey. And as you say, as you asked me, how is it sitting at the table now? I still feel that pain and loss, but this whole journey and since I've started my business called This Table, it's been interesting how there's such a parallel between my journey back to my table so that I can give this table and invite people back to this table with me. And that's the reason my business, you know, this is all part of my business, the sourdough. um, I want to get to that place where I have somewhere so that people can come to my table and have an experience, an experience that is doesn't have to have words because the food will be the language and that language will be at the table and it will be a place where people will feel completely refreshed and free to be themselves. So yeah, the journey back to the table is still happening. Um and there are times that I oh I eat I eat a lot by myself and that can be a little bit challenging, but I always make sure I light a candle and I make it special. Um, sometimes I don't feel emotion other times I just have still have tears coming down my face because the table to me is a place to be shared and I still mourn the loss of that with Mm. who I thought loved me yes yeah
0: I think there's I, I feel like you and I are on a similar wavelength when it comes to um, being able to appreciate the richness of all emotion. Yeah. But I imagine there are probably some people at this point going, oh, come on, you know, four years, you're still crying about it. Surely you should have got over it by now. Yeah. Um, <laughs> just because I know those people in my own life. Um, but I think um, there's something, don't you think there's something interesting in the way that those, those deep emotions and those deep, those, deeply transformative parts of our experience can actually live with us you know forever and um I, I saw a diagram recently um it was a it was somebody drawing a picture of what grief is like and they basically drew a circle and said this is your life and then grief happens and grief fills up all of the edges of your life um but then they said, what what happens after that is not that grief somehow diminishes. And I think we have this expectation often that somehow we just have to, you know, we just have to move on. We have to just move on from grief. Um, but that the diagram that they drew was actually that life expands beyond it. So the shape and the size of the grief doesn't change, but life continues to expand because life is this expansive creative force, um, and so life expands outside of grief. And I, you know, I struggle even with the language of move on from something because to move on from something is like to, you know, it's like you step from it's like you step from one place into another place. But actually, you know, I think we move forward through grief. We don't, you know, and and yet somehow we can talk about that much. I think we talk about that much easily, much more easily. When we're considering death, you know, or when we, dis- when we, when death is somehow easier to just be like, well, they'll always be with you. Whereas things like divorce and relationship breakdown, there's this idea of, oh, well, we'll just kind of scratch that out and start again. And that feels so, that feels distasteful to me.
1: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Look, I think there's so many um, layers to this. Uh, the people that, the people that say move on, um, they have every good intention, but those are the people that usually haven't experienced something um, really traumatic in their life or the grief, mm. and they don't know how to cope with it, so they're wanting you to move on so that they can actually not have to deal with it. Right. Um, probably a generalisation, but that's what I've found. I, I really recoil from anybody who says that. Um, the thing with marriage or losing, um, you know, like losing someone or it's 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 actually a loss of the dream that's what it is and Mm -hmm. so basically with a failed marriage it is a death but that person's still alive so it's actually really hard because you know like as in my case um um my my and I find this hard to say but my ex-husband moved on very quickly as statistically men do um sorry to be general generalizing that there but it is it is It is statistically true. Um, And he moved on very quickly, whereas I've stayed single for the last four years, and um, I was actually thinking about yesterday, I have made that decision um, on purpose because I've been on a journey back to myself. Now, um, I'm not saying that I want to stay in this place, but I really felt it was important to to make that journey back to myself because it does take you – quite a long time to come back to who you are just by yourself and when it comes to grief yes those people that say move on I do hold on to things much longer than I probably should and I'm acknowledging that um, I'm a romantic I'm um, I, I'm drawn to a melancholia I'm drawn to the tragic um, so I do have this part of me that holds on but I've also come to realize that sometimes you hold on to grief because it's the only evidence that you've loved So you hold on to it because you Mm. sort of don't want to let go because that was your last little link to the dream that you had. But moving on beyond the borders is really important. I think grief, as we all know, every human being knows, grief changes you. You're never the same person again. And a lot of that is really good. And most Mm -hmm. of it's just really painful. But underlying all of this journey that I've been through and anybody that's going through a grief journey, it's not just the situation that happened. What you come to realise is that it actually unearths all the stuff that you've been carrying for years. Because when we choose a partner, we choose things that we don't even know about. And often we choose stuff that is... um, painful because it's actually familiar now I've I'm not saying that's what I did or I didn't do but I do know that since this has happened um, it has unearthed a lot of stuff that I've had to work through and I'm still working through and it's very confrontory. and um, some people would move for it quicker but you know some of us actually need to just take a little bit more time Mm. Yeah, I I
0: don't think that it's ever appropriate to put time on the process no. of grief. Um, but one of the things that I um, I actually saw this um, I saw a quote the other day, and and I, knowing that this conversation was coming up, I thought, oh yeah, this is exactly this is the heart of it. And I wondered if we would land here, which is that the um, this idea that um, the quote is grief never ends, but it changes. It's a passage. Not a place to stay mm. grief is not a sign of weakness or a lack of faith it is the price of love and I think that's what you were just saying you know in terms of yeah. it's it's the evidence of what's left behind but it's a it's a passage it's a, it's something that we walk through but it's not but there's no time constraint on that you know and I think sometimes you just need to take sometimes you have to take the time that it takes to do the work and you know however deeply you unwrap that is how is however you know that's however deeply it needs to be. Yeah. What was the first? Um, what was the first time for you that you felt, I am, I am coming back to myself. I am redis- rediscovering or, or living into who I am more than I have before. But obviously, the journey, um, mm-hmm. the journey into the, the this table business has been one that's taken a number of years. But but what were the starting steps uh, on that journey for
1: you? Okay, uh, probably a couple of years ago, well, as, you, as you've alluded, it started four years ago right from the start, really. But um, a couple of years ago, I went to live with some um, other friends of mine. i tell you what, I've, I've lived around. I've been in about 20 different places that I've lived in the last four years, and I've been very blessed by the incredible generosity of people, yourself included. Um, who have taken me into their homes. So I went to live for two years with um, some lovely friends of mine, Jan and John Olding. And, um, you know, the kitchen is very much a woman or the person who's predominantly cooking domain. And Jan has Jan and John have a fabulous kitchen. And, you know, Jan just invited me into her kitchen. Like, it's it was incredible. Like, she just welcomed me in. <laughs> And Jan's a very practical person, and she was listening to what I was talking about, listening to my vision, my dream. And she was there with me the whole way through those two years, encouraging me and um, just excited about what I was doing. And that's when I really started cooking again. I found it really hard to cook for a long time. And I tentatively started cooking when I started when I moved on with them and then I, I decided that on my two days off I would bake something and I would style it and I'd photograph it on my iPad and that's what reintroducing it. ritual right there aren't you what's that reintroducing ritual right there aren't you yeah yeah that's right and so um I started doing that and I'd photograph it on old planks of timber that I'd picked up from old demolition sites on the garage floor you know nothing glamorous. <laughs> recreating what I wanted to convey in a home that was very modern, but I I wanted to create something that was a little bit more grungy, so I used a lot of timber and um, flat lays. And so I on my days off for two days, that's what I started doing. And then after quite a few months, I decided that I wanted to revisit something that I had loved and never really fully actually... Um, Invest well, not investigate that. I didn't fully get into it as much as I could. When I was eighteen, I started baking bread. So I found this old book in my um in my lockup because I've had a lockup um for you know, four years in Auckland, and um, most of my stuff's been in there. And I just live with the minimum that I take with me at each place I go to. And I found this old book called the Tassajara Bread Book, and it's written by a Zen Buddhist monk. And I, when I was eighteen, I started cooking out of that book. And I found it again, and I thought, you know what? I'm actually going to revisit this. So I started teaching myself sourdough bread making. And believe me, mm. some of those breads that came out looked terrible. <laughs> when I looked back, I thought they were amazing. They were shocking. But um, Jan started really encouraging me on that, and that is when um, I, I went from baking random things to just um, more and more getting into the bread baking and photographing that, and started thinking, hey, This is what I want to do because I was very drawn to the process. The process is um, an alchemic process. It's a transformation process. It's taking very simple elements and it's allowing um, microbes and bacteria to transform something into something living. And that's when I really hooked into that and it became something in me that I just wanted to be a part of. I wanted it to be a part of my life. Number one, because it was simple. Everything in my life had been stripped away and I wanted and I craved simplicity. Mm-hmm. And so just flour, salt, water and wild yeast, for some reason, it just drew me like a magnet, And I'm still as passionate about it today. Um, there's nothing like making that loaf of bread. And that process is scientific. It's intuitive. It involves love. It involves care, it involves passion, but it's also really unpredictable a little bit like life.
0: Hi guys, just Tash here. Can you believe that we are halfway through season one? That's right. My goodness. There are six more episodes to come before we e- launch into even more exciting season number two. But coming up in the next few weeks, more stories about deconstruction, more stories about mental wellness and how people have overcome tragedy in their lives. And we've also got more conversations around uh, what's changing in culture and how to transform those things that are most close to us. As ever, your feedback is inspiring and keeps me going. Please join the Facebook group and share what you're thinking and as always subscribe wherever you get your podcasts rate and review. Uh, I so appreciate all the shares. Thanks so much. Now let's get back to this episode of The Transformationist. So, I mean, so you you rediscover which and I think that there is almost always uh this is observational, not I haven't done the research although I would like to do the research on this one, but my observation is that In times of grief and loss there is almost always something of our former selves of our younger selves that we that we end up going back and revisiting and then pulling forward into the future with us and and sometimes I feel like whilst I don't I don't believe in plan a or plan b you know I don't believe that we can get off track I think that where we end up in our lives is sometimes a journey to help us go back to where we to go back and revisit something that we needed to but yeah, but in that process of of going back to the former self and something that even as an eighteen year old maybe was I don't know how significant or insignificant it was, but that then coming forward and being like, oh yes, wait, I you know I remember this. This is something that mm. that was that was there and waiting for me all along. Yeah, uh, was it the what was it about the the making of bread? Like, take us into the process and and what that was. What that was like for you? Was it the kneading of the dough? Was it the was it the the science of getting the the proportions just right? What was it that that you first started to um, to I guess you know find your groove in?
1: Tash, it was just the taste of fresh bread with heaps of butter and honey. On <laughs> <those>. <laughs> I mean, I've got a little bit bigger this year because I had my you know post marriage breakup body for three years. It was amazing, but now I've kind of put on a few little extra kilos. <laughs> Because you know, there's nothing better than sitting down once you've baked a loaf of bread and you can't wait for it to cool down. So you cut through that crust and it just makes the most amazing sound, and then it just reveals this voluptuous, beautiful crumb of you know, gorgeousness, and then you take the butter and you just spread it on and it melts and then you drizzle over the honey. So, um, anyway, that is that is No, keep talking. That's that true. <laughs> But I first of all just want to go back a little bit um, to say, um, uh, basically, um, I was actually through that in that grief. I was scanning for something. You were say, "What is it? What is it about returning?" What was your question about returning to, or re- referencing when I was eighteen? So basically, um, when all this happened to me, or you know, through this process, I was scanning for a reference. I was scanning for desperately searching for a recognition of anything that was that was who I was because I completely didn't know who I was and um I basically I realized that um I realized I had to return to that simplicity because everything was so confusing and I, I remained like that for, for you know for a couple of years and I think um I don't know if I'm answering your question correctly because I've sort of forgotten about a little bit when I was describing the bread, but When I was 18, I spent a year um, at my parents' place. I dug up the whole back section, planted an organic garden, and for a year I baked bread, made all my own shampoo, toothpaste, preserves, jam. I just had people at my table all the time. I grew the most incredible vegetables. It was the most amazing year of my life. And I think what happened is through this whole process of grief, and I'll tell you there were some really dark times that I thought I'd never, ever laugh again or Find happiness again, and I just was scanning and desperately searching who I was and why and and what I was meant to give back to the world. But the essence of who I was, and I kept remembering this time when I was eighteen, and really, that's probably what I just decided to recreate because I had people to my table, and I thought I've always done that, and so I'm just going to go on this journey to teach myself this process now. The process of sourdough, yes, it's all about getting in the zone. Like anything, you take the flour, you take the water. You've got a, a wild yeast starter that you feed, so it's got all this mi- mi- uh, microbial activity. Um, it's it's basically a symbi- symbiotic microbial ecosystem that it's made mm. up of wild yeast and lactic acid bacteria that is like colonized when you when you mix the flour and water, and so it's watching this process and so that's what you do you have a starter you have i use organic flours you mix them together you follow a recipe you begin to create um uh, create gluten and that that is something that you do through a process of stretching and folding the dough over several uh, like about 2 or 3 hours so the whole process is is very um it's like a ritual it's like a gentle beautiful place where you actually find your mind isn't dwelling on really awful things your mind Mm. isn't trying to work stuff out it's just in the rhythm and so that's that's the whole thing about sourdough then you're shaping the loaf and then you're slicing the top of the loaf with a razor to so that it vents the air uh, that the heat comes out and then it has what you call a big oven lift and that's where you get those crusts on top and you mm. bake the bread and then it comes out and and when you look at it, you realise that it's not exactly the pattern that you thought, but it looks amazing anyway. Then you taste it and it's the aroma, the taste, um, and then it's giving it to people and then it's teaching it to people because it's, you know, bread is the stuff of life. So I think, I don't know if I'm answering that question properly, but it's just um, that is why I'm drawn to it. That's why... I um, feel like it's really beautiful thing to share with other people because not only is it completely better for your digestion because it's a wild yeast and it's gentle on your digestive system, it's been pre-digested, it's pre-fermented. It's also just the stuff of life and it's also just beautiful and there's nothing better than giving someone a fresh loaf of bread. So, yeah.
0: Do you ever feel um, I'm torn as you describe... As you describe that process from beginning to end, and I want to go back and dive into some elements of that. As you describe that process, I'm so torn by the idea of something that has so much work involved that then is so momentary. You know, like all of that time and effort and work goes into creating this beautiful loaf that I imagine disappears within days, if not hours, yeah. from so being minutes, finished. Minutes. <laughs> And then, and then you you go in and you recreate the process again. But then, I guess the gift is maybe in, the gift is maybe in the experience of it, you know, which kind of brings us right back to the table. But talk to me about talk to me about the starter because I travel far too much to maintain a starter, and yet I love the idea of um, having something that is living and and breathing and feeding and constantly giving of itself but I am way too scared to start the process so can you talk to me about starter
1: uh yeah I can actually send you some notes but um (laughs) the, the starter the sourdough starter is the most difficult information to convey to people when I'm teaching my workshops um it's basically like having a little a little animal that you have to feed so you have to remember you can't just leave it and not care about it because those microbes need feeding And once the flour and water that you've added to feed it has been, they've eaten, and the and the alchemic process has caused it to bubble up, and you've got the um, you know, the the ethanol and the and the um, well, I mean the carbon, um, the carbon, the bubbles that that come into there. It's like once you've got that process happening, um, it's going to deplete once they've fed on it, and then it it falls down again and becomes flat and people don't realize that actually you've got to look after it. So, um, but the other side of it is that you can actually feed a sourdough starter and put it in the fridge and leave it for a couple of weeks. Um, Mm. It's just about the consistency that you feed it because once, once you put it in the fridge, it just slows the microbial activity down. And um, so basically the, the microbes are still there. They're still living, but they're just very sleepy and so once you understand the starter, I so say in the workshops, once you understand how to look after your sourdough starter, that is the essence of making good bread. So you can still do it if you travel, you just pop it in the fridge. And when you come back, you take it out, you scoop out some, discard it, and then you refeed it.
0: Amazing. Yeah. So is that where the rhythm of sourdough starts? Because it's such a, as you describe it, it's such a rhythmic process. So is the, the rhythm starts with caring for the starter
1: definitely yeah it's about understanding it really i think it's like anything you know it is a scientific process um it is uh it's just a uh, understanding the science of it and understanding how to take care of that because from that sourdough starter it's like a lot of things um comes a whole lot of other stuff obviously the loaves of bread and being able to create from it. it's like anything in life i guess it's like relationship you look after a relationship you feed it um, we all do this, where you know, and, and I just want to mention here, I'm I'm a human being with all my flaws, and obviously when you've been in a relationship, um, it's hard for me to say this, but it's not only just one person, is it, when it breaks down, um, because we we just you know we're human and and we fail and um, we have expectations that don't get met. So it's it's like we need to feed that starter so that it's an it's in its optimum level to make the bread. And it's like in life we need to feed ourselves, we need to feed our spiritual lives, we need to feed our physical lives, we need to feed our friendships and our relationships for them to actually work properly. And we screw mm. up all the time. We forget, we we you know, but when you've got a starter, if you're really serious about it, you don't forget, you get in the rhythm. And um, you know, the whole thing with sourdough, Tash, is that when I think about it, really, I think all I'm doing is building a home on the inside because when I bake, I feel like I'm at home and I don't have a mm-hmm. home. Like, I don't have my own home. I'm living in other people's places. At the moment, I'm living by myself I'm in Hawke's Bay. I'm living in a place for six months by myself. It's the first time ever I've lived by myself. And I think the whole thing about sourdough and this table is that I'm just journeying back to I'm longing for my own table. I'm longing for a home. And when I bake, and it doesn't matter where I go, I take my sourdough starter with me, and my gracious friends will let me cook in their ovens. And as soon as I smell that bread cooking, I feel like I'm at home in myself. And I think Mm. that's what I want to give to other people, that sense of peace and rest and healing. That you can feel that sense of grounding that you can feel when you're involved in the process of sourdough. It's just a very simple thing, but it's it's so beautiful.
0: So, what's it like teaching people? Because you, um, I've seen you've been doing these these workshops, and I see you making your I see you making your beautiful loaves, and and then I see you um, teaching workshops. What's it like teaching people uh, how to make how to make sourdough? Do we all make the same mistakes when we first start? Or yep. yep.
1: everyone makes the same mistakes and the biggest mistake is looking after the sourdough people get confused about how to deal with that so it's I spend a lot of time at my workshops the first hour just talking about the sourdough starter and how you look after it and what it's all about um I love teaching workshops before the workshop because I'm I, I love to be lavish and I'm a bit um, I go a bit over the top so I bake a lot of different breads before the workshop Um, my last workshop I did was 20 people and that was in Gisborne last week with Waimata cheese and Longbush wine so that was a collaboration that's why I came to Hawke's Bay to do collaborations and I've been doing a, a number of them and um they're ex- it's exhausting because it's just me, and usually I'm staying at a friend's place and using their wee oven. So, in 48 <laughs> hours last week, I cooked 16 different types of bread and I had about an oh hour gosh. sleep, and I made two very big mistakes, and it was very stressful because it's all about timing. And um, so, it's exhausting. It's um, it's, it's like you know that the buck stops with you. If you don't turn up with the goods, then like what is that all about? And I actually bake a loaf of bread. I mean, I make a loaf of bread, take them through the stretch and folding process during the workshop. Then I've already pre-made one that I cook in the oven to show them. So I've got a lot of stuff going on all at once. And then we get to end with a, a beautiful feast. Um, It's just very simple, but all the breads I've made, wine, um, I make a soft cheese, I have... Um, prosciutto and olive oil and salted butter and we just gather around the table and consume vast amounts of bread and I also do a morning tea and we have a chocolate cinnamon scroll that I make so it's a really exhausting process just to do that and I often takes me about a week to get over it because I'm not a young chick anymore Um, but it's really satisfying because every workshop I do I just love the inspiration that people get. Um, Having said that when I do a workshop there'll probably be only two people that continue baking the sourdough, but it's the experience they want and the stories and the encouragement, and that's what I love. It's being able to share my, a bit of my journey with them and and just to let them know that we all have a story and that um, we're all here for each other and we are all got something to give, yeah.
0: Is there, uh, where does your, as you describe the process, you, you're you describing this, the um the the stretch and the fold you know so i imagine this kind of physicality yeah. to making bread and, and a few kind of loaves of bread that i have made you know i do know there is this there is this physical rhythm where do you find your mind going now you said that that it's that you don't dwell on the on the ugly things or on the sad things anymore where where does your mind go when your body is involved in that physical process of kneading
1: well that's a really interesting um, question um Gee, I think it just goes into a state of restfulness. I mean, uh, when I'm preparing for a workshop, there is a bit of anxiousness. Um, right. But it's all about um, just checking the dough out, seeing if it's right, um, thinking about how beautiful it is, maybe who I'm going to share it with, who I'm going to sell it to, or uh, what my next workshop is. It's all about creating, and I think um, – that's the one thing I wanted to say. Through all this process of grief, I never stopped creating, and I think that's so important. And that's what it's all about. It's about creating, because when you create, you're building something, and you're building something fresh and new. And you can step into it, and <coughs> you can step away from what's behind you. So when I'm when I'm making that dough, I'm just I'm feeling like I'm at home. I'm feeling peaceful. I'm feeling fulfilled. I'm feeling excited about how it's going to come out, and um, yeah, I'm just I'm just having a sense of restfulness, I guess, and um, yeah, just being able to create something so simple out of something out of just you know very very few elements. It, it never ceases to amaze me, and of course, beyond that, I'm building towards where I'm going, which I actually don't know where I'm going exactly, um, but I'm in my mind, I think I'm, every loaf I make, I'm creating my future. Uh, whether I make sourdough until I'm an 85-year-old woman or not, I don't know, but I feel like it all will always be a part of my life and my home, wherever that home may be.
0: Is, do you think there's a reason why we've rediscovered a love for sourdough and for kind of, I guess, you know, wild bread or kind of true bread? as opposed to the manufactured, mass-produced
1: stuff? Yes, I do, in my opinion. I think if we look worldwide, globally, uh, the world's going through, I mean, it always has, the world has always been going through trauma, but there's just so much going on. And I think, you know, I've seen, and it's not rocket science, I've seen, because, you know, everyone will be seeing this, I've seen people returning to healthy nutrition pottery, weaving, um, organics, earthiness, realness, um, you know, genuineness, authenticity. And so I think the whole thing with sourdough is people are actually also, they want to be able to make this beautiful loaf of bread if they can, you know, learn how to deal with the timing of it. They, they want to be able to go back to basics and be able to produce something really beautiful and healthy. And I think that the, the really big side for me is that sourdough, um, a lot of people are going around saying they're gluten intolerant and um, with gluten problems, and I fully respect that. But I do think that um, there's been such a big wave of it that um, if people could just come to understand about sourdough, because yes, the baking industry has just been filled with lots of stuff like genetically modified flowers and 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 um, man made yeast and and trying to make everything fast. And I think the whole thing with sourdough is to actually slow down. And mm. also, it's about the health, nutrition, the whole nutrition behind it. If you study the whole science of how incredible it is for your gut. It is amazing. And I have a lot of people that I have given sourdough to to eat who are gluten intolerant and they've had no problem because the thing is I use organic flours, I use good product, and it's also, it's just pre-digested. So it's already pre-prepared for your digestive system and I think people are wanting to know about that but they don't quite understand how incredible it is. So mm. that's why I teach workshops because I like to teach them like, you know, there's this bacteria that, that lives inside of this and, and you do, you know, this process and you're basically, you know, putting carbon dioxide into this product that, you know, that when you bake it, it makes these lovely holes and it not only looks beautiful, but that's part of the process. And it's like, um, yeah, it's, it's, if people could understand how incredibly nutritious it is, I think more people would want to bake it.
0: Do you think we just um we resist do you think we resist the slowness of it the time that's required to to do it well?
1: I don't know about resisting. I just think um, people find that quite hard because, you know, everyone lives like, not everyone, a lot of people live a very fast life. There's so much going on. You know, there's, you you know, you know, I mean, you're always flying around the world. And I I look at you and I don't even know how you do half the stuff. Like, are you up all night? And um, I think it's like people often say to me, well, how long is this going to take? And when I tell them, their whole face falls and they're like, oh, I just don't know if I can fit that into my life. And actually, I had one lady who said "Um, in the middle of a workshop, oh, I think I'll just go and buy a loaf of sourdough. Um, <laughs> but the thing yeah. is, I think that is the whole thing about it. It's finding something that works for you and demystifying it because, yes, it is a long process. But I have a loaf that everyone loves, a recipe, and basically it is so easy and you don't have to stretch and fold it and it's still made with sourdough starter. And if you can incorporate that into your life, it's actually a lot easier. So it's all about demystifying it as well as saying, you know, just make it work for you. And when you can find that place for it to work for you and just maybe one make, make one recipe that you know is going to be really good for you, you know, you don't have to be baking like me, you know, a whole lot of loaves every week or be like a bakery. You just have to understand that you can, you know, make something simple. The other thing, Tasha, is that you can use flat sourdough, the sourdough that has fallen down and needs to be refired You can actually just pour it off into a container in the fridge. You can make crumpets with it. You can put it in cakes. You can make pikelets with it. You can put it in scones. It's a healthy byproduct. It's there for you to be, you know, to, you can use it bubbly or you can use it flat.
0: Which is quite remarkable, really, it to is. think that even something, even something that goes beyond its usefulness, is still useful.
1: Yeah, it's still useful, and it's still got that you know some of the components of the of the process in it, living in it. But they just you know they haven't been fed, so there's still some activity there, but it's just not enough to make a loaf of bread.
0: Mm. What do you think making sourdough has has done for you in your in your transforming process in your recovery or your you know you're moving through the passage of grief?
1: It's made me bigger. <laughs> <laughs> no, um, look, I'm just kidding. Um, it has you know that it look um, it's what you put on it. You see, I mean, you would be spreading thick um seventy two percent you know Ghana chocolate on your bread um because you know well I don't do that. That's just a joke. Um, What has it done for me? What is it doing for me? It's actually, look, I don't know where I'm going with this. I am trying to build something in my life that will give me a bit of an income mixed with other things. Um, I came to Hawke's Bay strategically to launch my profile in the food industry with my sourdough. Um, I have begun to do that, which is really encouraging. People are starting to, to know that, you know, I'm the sourdough lady. Mm -hmm. Um, It's been incredibly hard making that move. I miss Auckland, I miss my friends, and it's been quite lonely since I've been here. There's some beautiful people, beautiful place, but it's a smaller community, so it takes longer to break into. Um, So what has it done for me? It's given me a focus. Um, I wouldn't be here in Hawke's Bay unless it was for sourdough. I have to remind myself I'm on a journey. I'm I'm constantly reviewing it. I'm constantly just praying, is this the right thing? Am I heading to the right place, I mean, um, the sourdough is part of my strategy to move me into the next phase, which is this table, to have people at my table and in a thoughtfully thoughtfully curated space in my cottage, which I don't have money to buy, so that people come (laughs) and step into the space and come to my table to experience food as the language of the region and the sourdough being part of that. So this is part of a strategy to get me to this table, But quite frankly, it's a a real journey of faith because I have no idea what is going to really happen next. I'm living day to day, but doing all my events. But overall, it's given me a sense of home. It's given me a sense of um, satisfaction. And the thing I love about it the most is when I see people eat my bread. That's what I love. When I see people eat... Um, a loaf of drunken fig and toasted walnut loaf smothered Mm. in um, soft cheese that's been made um, with yoghurt and transformed itself into soft cheese and mixed with cardamom, maple syrup and honey and vanilla. And when I watch Mm. them do that and they sit there with their glass of wine and then the conversation flows and then people start to tell stories, that is what it's all about for me. It's the gift. Yeah. It sounds... delicious (laughs) delicious <laughs> it is i'll make one for you when i come back to auckland
0: oh that sounds so good so if people want to see your table if they want to uh drill over these beautiful loaves that you are making mm-hmm. um what's the best way for them to find you is it on instagram
1: uh, yes it's on instagram um but it's also um basically on uh, on instagram would be the main one um and also on my website Um, I'm doing a um, big event for Fork for the Food and Wine um, Festival here in Hawke's Bay on the 5th of November which is a um, Simple Pleasures which is a bread and um, and beer match with a boutique beer company called Brave Brewery Um, so you will find those events um, that one actually is sold out but you'll find events on my website if you go onto my website which is thistable.co.nz and of course... um, Yeah, just on my Instagram. Yeah. Fabulous. That's how you'll find me. Uh, Otherwise, you can call me um, and uh, my phone number, I think, will be on my website. I'm not sure about that. Just uh, email me. And if if you're passing through Hawke's Bay and you would love to come and try some of my bread, we can arrange a private little, you know, bread time and uh, just ring me up or email me. Fabulous! I like the idea of bread time. Yeah, bread time. I just came up with it. Bread time. Well, I get breaking bread. It's all about breaking bread. Which actually, can I just mention just last? It's it's coming to the table, and this table is for everyone. But it's also, you know, the breaking of bread, which is uh, another ritual that I love um, within my Christian faith, is sharing the bread, the 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 broken body, and um, I guess you know, the brokenness. Brokenness is just, it just happens in life, but when you can break it and life comes out of it, that's, I think that's what it's all about really, yeah.
0: Thanks for listening to this episode of The Transformationist. We hope that the journey doesn't stop here. For more information about this episode and materials we referenced, please visit thetransformationist.org or join the Facebook group for more conversation about this week's episode. Just search for The Transformationist by Tash McGill on Facebook. This episode was written and produced by Tash McGill with production support from Truthwork Media and music is by Hans Van Vliet. The Transformationist is brought to you by Solar Feeder Consulting and TashMcGill.com.